let's pray with um, Jesus' prayer for us at the Last Supper in John. That's not John. In John chapter 17. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father for the apostles, and then he comes to this moment. I pray not only for them, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I, and I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may believe that you sent me, and that you love them even as you love me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved them, with the love with which you loved me, may be in them, and I in them. Jesus, help us to receive this intercession you offer on our behalf. We have come to believe through the word of the apostles. Help us to know and believe your great love for us. Help us to hear the desire of your heart to draw us into one, into a depth of union that is the same as your union with the Father, that we may be one in you, full of your love and the love of the Father which he has for you. Bless us, Lord, in our day today. Send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive every grace and blessing you desire to give to us. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Something went missing. <laughs> da, 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 da. Just gonna check one thing real quick. It's in my backpack. Okay. Just want to pick up. That <laughs> Sean. No, I was going to say you got it. We got it. Last night, we got to this point of describing how intimacy, if I have an intimate relationship with you, I know your thoughts, I know your feelings, I know your desires, and very important, because neither of us are creepers, you know mine. Okay, we're good. And this is true also of our relationship with God. God who's revealed himself to us, God who attends to us, invites us to pay attention to him, to receive what he's revealed, and to make ourselves known to him, to entrust to him our thoughts and feelings and desires. So if prayer is lifting up our hearts to God, well, what's in my heart? What's in my heart are thoughts and feelings and desires, or memories, which are just thoughts, feelings, and desires connected to past experience. Okay. So I'm not making this up. Um, that's important for you to know all the time. Meditation, the catechism says, is a prayerful quest engaging what? Thought, imagination, emotion, and desire. Thoughts, feelings, desires, and imagination, which we'll say more about later. The goal of meditation is to make our own in faith the subject considered, who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by confronting God with the reality of our own life. 
So the idea is when I go to pray, when I pay attention to the word of God, when I pay attention to a mystery of Jesus' life, when I'm listening to the prayers at Mass, when I'm listening to the word of God at Mass, when I'm receiving communion, when I go to pray, I fix my attention on God, the natural thing that happens is that thoughts, feelings, and desires in my own life get stirred up. Stuff that's going on in my real life gets stirred up. And a lot of times you think that that's a distraction in your prayer. It's not a distraction. It may be, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but most of the time, what stirs in my heart, when my heart is engaged in response to something, when I'm paying attention to God or the things of God, that is the stuff that God wants me to entrust to him, to confront God with the reality of all my own life. God, here I am. I reveal myself to you. I choose to share these things with you, to tell you all about them, as if you would know nothing about them unless I told you. And that's what meditation is. There yeah, we go. So, to cultivate this growing intimacy with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are four essential habits of growing in intimacy. And I'm going to go through these quickly. Uh, I can read more about them in that little book, The Parish is a School of Prayer, or any number of other talks. You can find them find online somewhere. But for the sake of our time in these three conferences, I'm going to go through this a little quickly. So, these four habits of growing in intimacy with God. Acknowledge, relate, receive, respond. Right? This is the wonderful formulation of the Institute for Priestly Formation. And it's so helpful in cultivating prayer as a relationship, an experience of personal relationship with God. So, first of all, to acknowledge, to notice, to pay attention to, to name or admit or recognize my thoughts, feelings, and desires. And you and I live in a culture of distractions, right? And so this is not as easy as it seems. And men have a special fallen genius to pay no attention to any of this for long periods of time. <laughs> Ladies, when you ask your husbands, honey, what's on your mind? And he says, nothing. He's not being evasive. Okay. In a man's brain, there's a nothing box, and we like the nothing box. No, just... And it's very easy in... Uh, uh, in our digital age, with all the entertainment, with all the bells and whistles that we have in our world around us, to not to go periods of time, men and women alike, without really paying attention to what's going on in my heart. One of the names I had for acknowledgement was to admit. Because sometimes the stuff that's going on in my heart is, I don't like that. I don't like that I feel this way. I don't like that I'm thinking those thoughts. I don't like that I want to punch that guy in his face. That's not, I'm not a violent person. Why do I want to punch him in the face? I don't know, but I do. No, I don't. <laughs> There's no one in this room right now I want to punch In this room. So, so sometimes that's why we avoid and we, we choose to be distracted. You know, I don't like what's going on here. There's turmoil, there's stress, there's anxiety, so I'm just going to veg out in front of the TV or I'm going to go take a nap or I'm going to go shopping or I'm going to go binge watch Netflix or whatever I'm going to do. Okay? So the first essential habit for going in intimacy with God is paying attention to what's going on in our own hearts. If you met someone new here today and you tried to get to know them, you know, start to know their preferences, it's like, hey, where are you from? And they tell you where they're from. And they're like, oh, what do you like to do? And they're like, huh, I don't really know. Oh, um, well, what, what kind, do, do you like to, do you go out to eat sometimes? Oh, sure I do. Well, what's your favorite restaurant? Hmm, I don't know. You know, like if I don't have some self-possession, I can't really enter very deeply into a relationship with another person. Okay. So that first essential habit is to pay attention to what's going on in our hearts, which is, um, uh, can be more challenging than it would seem on its face. Okay. 
The second essential habit is to relate those thoughts, feelings, and desires honestly to God. To tell God all about it. And as I said yesterday, God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But he's not a creeper. So he invites us to reveal ourselves to him so that we can experience being known by him because we've revealed ourselves to him. The way he made us to experience intimacy. And to tell God all about it. I, my favorite maybe uh, analogy of this is like I'm visiting a family's home. Mom's there and her husband and the kids over at the neighbor's house, right? <laughs> Neighbor mom calls up and says, oh, Judy, you got to tell you this adorable thing that the boys just did outside, blah, blah, blah. And tells mom the whole story, oh, right? About little Timmy. And then when little Timmy comes home, mom says, hey, tell me about what happened at neighbor mom's house, right? Why? Mom already knows the story. Why does she want to hear it from her son? To ask that of her son is a loving thing. And if he chooses to dare to reveal himself, that's a response of love. And their communion of love is deepened. So in the Gospels, Jesus forever is asking people things he already knows. Uh, Bartimaeus, man, you know, blind man stood by the road and he cried. Jesus, son of David, have pity of me. And Jesus calls him over. A blind man is standing in front of him. Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> oh, that used to drive me nuts. <laughs> Jesus, what do you think, Jesus? I don't know. There's a blind man. You give a bunch of blind men. What in the world could he possibly want from you? That's before I understood a little bit about intimacy, right? This is a loving thing for Jesus to ask. Of course he knows what the man wants. But he asks him to tell him all about it. Because he knows if Bartimaeus will express this desire, will entrust this desire to Jesus, Bartimaeus will be made maximally receptive to the gift that Jesus wants to give to him. And, G and Bartimaeus receives much more than the recovery of sight. Lord, I want to see. And his eyes are opened, and Jesus says, go your way. Immediately he followed Jesus on the way. He received this gift of greater faith, and he became a disciple of Jesus, which is much more than just being restored in his vision. So, I have this picture of the tributaries to the Mississippi River for a reason. When we go to pray, our thoughts, feelings, and desires can be all over the place. Amen? Amen. Amen. And some of us have more gerbil-like brains than others. Like, <laughs> sheep among us, right here. And so that can feel like, right? and it's true, it's sometimes when we go to pray, it just takes a while for the to just quiet down. That's why I recommend when people start to pray that you give yourselves at least a half hour. Because for me, it can easily take 15 minutes just to kind of calm down and start to notice what's going on among all the buzz. Okay? But when we go to pray, I don't need to judge whether or not what thoughts or feelings or desires I become aware of as I'm paying attention to God and the things of God, whether they are good enough or pious enough or seem uh, spiritual enough to be talking to God about. Uh, a number of years ago on a retreat, I went to pray. I was in the middle of an eight-day silent retreat, having a beautiful retreat. And I went to one of my hours of prayer, and all I could think about was a craving for ice cream. I was dying for some ice cream. And I'm not an ice cream fiend. Right? It's not like me. My dad is, but I'm not. <laughs> and um, so I was like, what is, what, what is that all about? Well, uh, it was, I thought it was a distraction, but it kept coming back and coming back. So I started praying with this, and I'm like, Jesus, I keep thinking about going to Dairy Queen and getting a 
peanut mustard parfait, and that seems ridiculous to me, and it's annoying to me in this time of prayer because I want to be praying about this thing over here. And as I was telling Jesus about those thoughts and feelings, which I, in my judgment, were a distraction, I had a memory from my childhood. And it's my memory of my dad coming home, which he would do from time to time. At this point, he was in commission sales for big computer systems that take the National Weather Service data and turn it into the maps. Your smartphone can do that today. When my dad was selling these things, it would have taken up half the room, okay? And um, the, uh, when he made a big sale, it was a big deal. These were, you know, $300,000, $500,000 deals, and he's on commission, so that's a big deal. Didn't happen every day. But when it happened, and he was in a really good mood, he would come home with a little conspiratorial glint in his eye, and he would find me or my brother or my sister, just one of us, and he'd be like, hey, Scott, want to go get some Dairy Queen? Yeah. Yeah, let's go. So I'm just remembering this as I pray. But then I realized something I didn't know when I was young. That when we went to Dairy Queen, we didn't go to the one that was a mile away. We went to one that was like clear across town. And when we went there, we didn't go through the drive-thru, we went in. And of course I got the peanut butter parfait, because that's the biggest tub of ice cream that you can get. Because Dad's not going to let me get an ice cream cake, right? So... <laughs> and he ate his cone, he was done with that in two seconds, but he just, there was no rush. I'm just sitting there with my peanut butter parfait, and we're just visiting and visiting and visiting. And then we take a long way home. And I realized what was going on. My dad, who, because they had some financial stress, there was a lot of tension in the household a lot of times, and he knew the impact that that had on us kids. This is what I'm realizing on my retreat a number of years ago. When he was at his best, he wanted to share the best of himself with his children. He wanted to spend a leisurely time when he knew he was at his best to bless us. Oh my gosh, that realization in that moment of prayer just unleashed a flood of healing and increased love and affection for my dad. Jesus blessing that history and that relationship, bringing about all sorts of good things. Okay? That never would have happened if I would have kept just shooing away my craving for ice cream as a distraction. So all I'm encouraging you to do is just very honestly, as you pray, when something, anything, gets stirred up in your heart, tell God all about it. We'll talk about distractions in a little bit. Okay. If, so tell God all about it. And that's a huge interior leap. There's one thing to be aware of my thoughts, feelings, and desires. Then there's a huge interior leap to choose to entrust those thoughts, feelings, and desires to God. And that is an essential choice for us to grow in the habit of doing And if we do those things, we tell God all about it, as we are, honestly and consistently, we will be maximally receptive to the grace that God wants to give to us. Maximally receptive to the grace that God wants to give to us. And in our relationship with God, this is where the analogy of other intimate relationships with human persons that we have breaks down. Because in our human relationships, that has to, the giving and the receiving needs to be mutual. Right? If one person is doing all the giving and the other person only receives, that's a, a bit of a messed up relationship. Unless you're an infant. That cute baby over there is perfectly fully receptive, and that is good and holy. But when we're grown up, you know, right, we need that mutuality. But not in relationship with God. And why is Jesus always taking little children and putting them in front of people and saying, unless you become like little children, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Because in relationship with God, we are always and necessarily in this posture of receptivity. Because why? At the most fundamental level, right now, the reason that you exist and that you're not annihilated, you have not ceased to exist, 
is because God is choosing to love you into existence right now. So if you're ever doubting that God loves you, you don't even have to like fog up a mirror. Just the fact that you exist is infallible evidence that God is loving you with his unconditional love right now. And so if I depend on God's freely offered love to even exist, of course I depend on him for every other thing as well. And this is what Jesus says in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in my love, remain in my love, remain in my love. Because as soon as we pull away from his love, we are disintegrating. We're dying. That's sin. Pulling away from God's love is what sin is. That's what every sin is. That's all it is. And we're going to pieces towards annihilation, towards non-being. And it doesn't happen like that, thanks be to God, but that's what's happening. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So, in our relationship with God, like 99.9% of our relationship with God is, in fact, receiving. You can all hear this, and you're politely keeping quiet. Okay, that's that's interesting. But you don't believe me. So I'm going to try to convince you. (laughs) There's a theological reason and kind of a popular reason that I want to share with you. So, the theological reason is the nature of life in the Trinity. So uh, I, w- I went to the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, the theology school. Our class on the Trinity was in our first year when my Italian was still a little shaky. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, once I, I always tell people, as soon as I figured out there were six people in the Trinity, it was smooth sailing from there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Six! No, no, it was three. So, no, but I did learn something about the Trinity, right? It involves the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lo and behold. And from all eternity, in the relationships of the Trinity, so in this little image, I'm going to use these two lines. The solid line is to give yourself in love as a source, if you will, like the headwaters of the Mississippi River is the source of the Mississippi River. And the dotted lines are going to be uh, receiving what is given from another and then responding to what is given by a free, total, faithful gift of love yourself. So, from all eternity, the Father loves the Son. From all eternity, the Son receives everything he is from the Father. And in turn, in response, he loves the Father. He gives everything that he is to the Father. The Holy Spirit, we profess this in the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from... You're right. And theologically, we have to say as if from a single source, right? So the Father and the Son give themselves as if a single source per- totally to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, for his part, receives everything he is from the Father and the Son, and he loves the Father and he loves the Son. Okay? Now, how are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit different? This is like Trinitarian theology in two minutes, so... Okay, it's not perfect, but it's good. All right. Uh... What makes them different? Well, in theology, we say the persons of the, of the Trinity are distinct by virtue of their relationship. And this gives a little insight into the difference of the dynamics of relationship in terms of giving and receiving that distinguish the Father and the Son from each other, though we believe in one God. The Father is all about giving himself. He gives himself to the Son, and in union with the Son, he gives himself to the Holy Spirit. The Son, first of all, receives what he is from the Father, But he's also called to be given, he gives himself away as a source. And he does that only in union with the Father to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all about receiving and responding. 
Okay? So you can see the distinction in relationships in the persons of the Trinity. But it is the eternal Son who was born of the Virgin Mary and became man, who entered into our humanity. It is the eternal Son and his divinity to which our humanity has been united. And we have access to the life of the Trinity through Jesus, with him, and in him. Through the Son, with the Son, in the Son, born of the Virgin Mary. And so the way that Jesus, uh, the way that the eternal Son lives eternally in the life of the Trinity is modeled in the way he lives his life in our humanity, in the incarnation. And so like in John's Gospel, you can find three pages worth of quotes where Jesus says things like this. Uh, Everything I say to you, uh, sorry, a son can only do what he sees the Father doing. Uh, Everything I have, the Father has given to me. The Father and I are one. The words that I speak to you, I first heard from my Father. And on and on and on. And Jesus is revealing in human terms that everything he has, he's first received from the Father. And so that in doing so, he's showing you and I how we're meant to live. To receive everything from the love of God for us. And then, yes, Jesus gives himself away on the cross in perfect love. No greater love is this than to lay down your life for your friends. And at every Mass... The suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is made present and effective for you and me, which is why it's the source and summit of our faith, the masses. So Jesus, in those dynamics of giving and receiving, first of all, receiving everything he is from the Father, uh, not deeming equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather emptying himself, is showing you and I how we're meant to live, Uh, to receive everything, and then to be given away uh, in total love according to our vocation, but never on our own, but only in union with God. To receive, receive, receive. That's a little theological explanation of why receptivity has such a dominance in our relationship with God, because it did for Jesus in the incarnation. Here's a little popular version. I call it dandelion theology. Little boys of a certain age discover that their moms love flowers, right? And they're like, oh, great, it's Mother's Day or it's her birthday, I want to get mom some flowers. And then you're at the grocery store and you look at the flowers and you're like, oh, those cost money. I don't have any money. But then, if you live in the right place, probably not at Christmas time in <coughs> South Dakota, there's all sorts of lovely flowers that grow up for free in the backyard, these yellow dandelions, right? So little boys grab up a bunch of dandelions and they present them to their mom. Okay? And what do moms do with those dandelions? They put them in a little vase or a little glass of water. Where do they put that vase or water? Table. Kitchen table, maybe the window above the kitchen sink, in a very prominent place, right? Why does mom not look at her little son and say, get those weeds out of my house? <laughs> she would never do that. Oh, and what does mom say when she receives the dandelions for her son? Thank you. They're beautiful. They're beautiful, and? And I love you, too. You guys are perfect. A lot of you have the mom gene in here. This is great. great. Thank you, they're beautiful, and I love you too. She generously receives the gift of the dandelions. And in fact, when she puts them on the kitchen table, the whole sweetness and tenderness of this expression of love, right? Because when I give a gift, it's because I love someone, and I'm expressing my love through this tangible sign. And indeed, dandelions are a poor sign. But mom instinctively knows that her little boy has infused that poor sign with a surpassingly valuable gift, like all the love that's in his little heart. And so she cherishes the gift, Almost like she cherishes her baby boy when he was first born and placed in her arms. You know, with the tenderness and the care and the reverence that is due. 
And every time mom walks into the kitchen and sees the dandelions, all the sweetness and the tenderness of that like deepens and unfolds in her heart. So mom says, thank you, they're beautiful, uh, I love you too. But I want to propose that in her generous reception of the gift, mom says a fourth thing, which is, son, I want to receive more of you. And I don't think any mom has ever used those words, but every little boy has heard them. Because when mom oohs and ahs over the dandelions and puts them on the kitchen table, what does the boy do? Wow. Out the back door, and dandelions are in danger. <laughs> Five-acre region. It's true. Oh boy. So, how is this in our, as an analogy of our relationship with God? And it's very easy for me, I don't know about you, it's very easy for me to say, yeah, I'm like that little boy. I want to do something great for God. I want to be a saint for God. I want to convert the world for God. I want to... Be a holy and good priest for God. I want to do great things for God, like three dozen long stem roses, whatever that looks like in the spiritual life. But I can't do that. And so it's very easy for me to picture myself like, okay, God, I, I tried really good, hard. I wanted to do something great, but I just had to be involved in the game. And God kind of rolling his head, his eye, rolling his head, rolling his, his eyes at me and kind of patting me on the head like, oh, that's okay. Don't worry. Thank you. And <laughs> that's my own stuff, but I'm telling you, it's easy for me to But that's exactly backwards in the relationship. Because it is Jesus Christ, God himself, who comes to us in the distressing poverty of that little boy born in the manger in Bethlehem. And he offers himself to us through poor signs. In the Eucharist, which is the unparalleled way in which Jesus offers himself, he offers himself through the signs of bread and wine. Unleavened little wafers and cheap wine. But Jesus has so invested himself, uniquely in the Eucharist, that in fact, in the Mass, the bread and wine become him, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So how, in relationship with Jesus, can I say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I want to receive more of you. I'm proposing to you, I say all of those things perfectly, without words even, if I will generously receive the gift that he offers. There's a reason that we receive communion. We don't take communion. Some people in my parish learn like a lobster claw thing. They come up like this and then they go... <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little jarring when someone snatches communion. When they take communion. It's a little jarring for these deep reasons. Because at any, like of all moments, this is the moment where we are in a place of greatest poverty and receptivity. The God of the universe is giving himself to us, body and blood, soul and divinity, love without reserve, divine, infinite, eternal love is coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And what could I do but receive? But the good news is, in generously receiving, in lovingly receiving, like a mom receives the dandelions from her son, we say to God everything that we want to say. I love you. You're beautiful. Thank you. And I want to receive more of you. Receptivity. Cornerstone of our relationship with God. How do I become more receptive? By more honestly and more consistently acknowledging and relating in relationship with God the thoughts, feelings, and desires that are in my heart. Okay? Then, of course... Oop. Let me skip this. For the, for the sake of time, like this. 
then what we've received from God, in fact, calls for response. Okay? Now, I have a picture of a sailboat there, and there's no reason. Oh, I'm sorry, I should back to that. Uh, I won't go back here. On the previous slide, I had a picture of what? The Annunciation. What is the most fruitful human action in all of human history? Is Mary's yes, her fiat, right? But what did Mary say to the message of an angel? Did she say, okay, I'll do it? No. She said, let it be done unto me. Look at the receptive posture. So to receive divine love is the most fruitful human activity. Always. If you don't believe it, think about the Annunciation. And then, of course, what we receive calls for a response. Now, I have a picture of a sailboat here, because you and I are sailboats and not motorboats. What does that mean? It means that I can't, with all due respect to the title of this lovely gathering, refuel. Right? Here we're going to come together and fill up the tanks. My brothers and sisters, we can't refill the tanks. That's not how we're made. Blow up the tanks! Okay? Because we're meant to live in intimate and unceasing union with God. That's the only way we can live. God never says to us, here, I bless you, now go do some stuff, and when you get really tired out, come back. Never. Instead, he says, behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So we're meant to grow in the habit of continually receiving divine love and allowing, like the wind in a sail does, allowing what we've received to inspire, direct, and sustain our response. To inspire and direct and sustain our response. Okay? And that's meant to be, like I said, an intimate and unceasing experience of receiving from God and allowing what we've received from him to shape and inspire our response. We'll do this. Um, what determines the course and speed of a sailboat? A number of factors, right? Uh, number one, the size and shape of the sail. <coughs> number two, the direction and the force of the wind. Uh, number three, the shape of the hull. Number four, the balance of weight on the ship. Uh, what? The position of the rudder, uh, the wave state, and the currents. Okay? All of those things, I like to sail, all of those things go together <laughs> to determine an exact course and speed of a ship, of a sailboat. Okay? Well, imagine, so you're the sailboat and your heart is the sail. Now imagine a super intelligent wind that knew exactly where you were supposed to go and what time you were supposed to get there. So what course and speed you, noted you needed to go to arrive perfectly at your destination. And imagine that that super intelligent wind also understood all the things that were affecting you at this moment in your life. All of your relationships, all your situations, all the things that are going on, all the good things, all the lousy things, all the burdens, everything that's going on in your life right now, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional state, your psychological health, what's going on in your spirit. Imagine the super intelligent man knows all the circumstances affecting that sailboat, and then taking into account all of that, approaches the sail at the exact direction and force that if it is just fully received, as long as the sail is left open, left open and receptive, the wind will propel that sailboat exactly on course at the right speed to arrive at its destination. That take a lot of fun out of sailing, but it's a great way to live our lives, okay? Because God, that, who's that, what's that super intelligent wind? It's the Ruah, it's the Holy Spirit of God. The love of God poured out for us. The love that bonds the Father and the Son together in the Holy Trinity. 
In the Mass, we have the epiclesis over the gifts. May your Holy Spirit come upon these gifts and make them holy. I want to make sure my whole life is on that altar at that moment to receive that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that, in that moment of the Mass and at every moment of my day, I can grow in the habit of receiving the inspirations, the breathing into of the Holy Spirit in the sail of my heart, to allow the Holy Spirit, who knows the whole circumstance of my life, and knows where I'm supposed to be going and what I'm supposed to be doing, to inspire and direct and sustain my actions. Okay. <laughs> we turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, please? This is an important thing. Because there's a problem in some of your Bibles in Luke chapter 7. Verses 36 to 50. 36 to 50. So there's a sinful woman in the city who learned uh, that Jesus was at table in the house of the Pharisee. And bringing an alabaster flask of ointment, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the ointment. Notice how tender and vulnerable and intimate that whole interaction is. Uh, we could spend all weekend just there. We'd spend months there. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is, touching him, and that she is a sinner. Jesus said to him, hey, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher. He has no idea. The two-by-four that's coming his way. <laughs> two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days wages, the other owed 50. Since they were both unable to repay the debt, he forgave it for both. Which of them will love him more? The one, I suppose, Simon said, whose larger debt was forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. What's the meaning of that parable? The meaning of that parable is the one who has received more will respond with more love. Is that right? Are we all agreed about that? Yes? yes. Does anyone disagree with that? Not a trick question. Right. The clear meaning of Jesus' parable here is that when the master is owed the debt, and Jesus often talks about sin in that kind of terms, like I owe my sin is a great debt that I can't repay. Okay. The one whose greater sin is the one who owes the bigger debt is more loving when they've received greater generosity, more generously from the one to whom the debt is owed. Right? So who will love them? The one, I suppose whose larger debt was forgiven. You have judged correctly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, down verse 47. Hence, she has so shown great love. Okay. Her many sins have been given. Hence, she has shown great love. And that is the same logic as the parable we just said, right? She had a great number of sins. That debt has been forgiven. Therefore, she is showing this extravagant love. Correct? Right. Who has a different translation in their Bible? What does your translation say? Well, it, no, I guess it's not that different. In verse 47. Well, no, it's not that different. I agree with you. Well, what is your response? Verse 47. Therefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Right. That's exactly backwards. Her sins are forgiven because she loved much. No! That completely contradicts the whole meaning of the parable that Jesus is making this point with, right? Gee, if you love much, then your sins will be forgiven. 
there's a lot of people, wonderful, faithful people in the church, like, oh, I just got to try harder, and then I can get serious about my relationship with God, right? Maybe God will forgive me if I do all these right things. And that is exactly backwards. The whole meaning of the parable is that God forgives us. And when we receive the gift of his freely offered forgiveness, the response will be great love. Okay? That's really important. So a lot of those, I did a whole study on the little word that's ite in Greek. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> and it can be therefore or hence, right? But this is the translation that makes sense in keeping with the meaning of the parable that Jesus is saying. And I, the reason I make a, such a point of that is so many Christians have that confused and backwards, not just from this passage of scripture, but in our relationship with God. Like I have to show God's great love, great goodness and love in my life so that I can receive his love. No, no. If I receive his love, which is unconditionally and already given, and this is love, that why we're yet sinners, God gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were yet sinners, right? And this is love. Not that we have loved God, John says in 1 John 4, but that we, uh, not, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. Okay? So the priority is God's donation or gift of love, which is freely given and can only be freely received. <coughs> Receptivity is that important in our relationship with God. And it enables our response. What's the question? Is this the way that it should be then? Yeah, that's, this keeps okay. the logic of it, right? Okay. She's, her many sins have been forgiven. She knows she's forgiven. She's received the gift of forgiveness. Therefore, hence, she is showing me this great love. Jesus, if I want to love you more, how can I love you more? Well, I can receive more the gift of salvation and forgiveness he's given me on the cross. That's what I can do. I can choose to receive more. How do I receive more? By honestly and consistently acknowledging and relating more frequently my sins. Okay. Right here, uh, this is a good summary of what I want to say as this foundation of relational prayer. And it's from Philippians 4, 4 to 9. Okay. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. Now, this is St. Paul writing. <laughs> and uh, like I said last night, this can sound a little bit like he's living in Smurf Village, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Like, everything's great. Everything's awesome. Everything's great when you're part of a team. No, that's the Lego movie, right? <laughs> that's not That's not life, St. Paul. What, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, we'll go on. It's St. Paul, so we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt for a second. Okay. He says, have no anxiety at all. No worry, no stress, right? No burden. Have no anxiety at all. But in everything, by prayer and petition, together with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right. So often at Mass, do we pray that the peace of the Lord be with you? The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with your spirit. Amen. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, uh, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Right? Let us offer each other the sign of peace. The peace that Jesus wants to give that we pray for continuously in other places during the Mass is much more than the passive byproduct of when everything just lines up and is going great. Okay? And I want to unpack this very, the part in bold here, these very practical, um, this very practical advice that St. Paul gives us to enter into the peace of God. So if we do these things, which we'll explain in a second, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. 
Notice that this peace is not a passive byproduct. It is an active agency of divine love. The love of God is going to guard your heart and mind with a supernatural gift of peace. A peace that the world cannot give, the peace that the world cannot understand, and the peace that nothing in this world can shake or take away. Because it comes from God, and what God establishes is unshakable. The peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But, let's just make sure St. Paul is in touch with reality. This is it. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The same St. Paul who wrote that in Philippians writes this. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I am still more. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, far worse beatings. Uh, Paul is a man acquainted with sufferings. Far worse beatings, numerous brushes with death. Five times at the hands of the Jews I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was... uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Right? I passed the night and the day in the deep, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own race, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, through hunger and thirst, through three frequent fastings, through cold and exposure. <sighs> St. Paul is well acquainted with suffering. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, spiritual suffering. And this is St. Paul who writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Have no anxiety at all. St. Paul, how in the world could we possibly live this way? And he gives us the answer right there. In everything, by prayer and petition, together with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. You and I know what petition is. We'll talk more about it next conference. Um, it is asking God for the good things that we need, right? We have the petitions at Mass, or intercessory prayer. So making our requests known to God. We're familiar with that. But to do so with thanksgiving, say, that, say something about that in a second. And so what does St. Paul mean here by prayer? I propose that what he means by prayer here is to tell God all about it. Cry out to God with whatever is going on. And if you're having a great day, cry out with praise and thanksgiving. And if you're having the worst day ever, cry out to God in your sorrow, in your anger, in your fear, in your distress, in your despair. But cry out to God to it. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't try to manage it on your own. Don't try to figure it out and fix it the best you can. No, cry out to the Lord in all things by prayer, telling God all about it. Then asking him for what you desire what you desire. Ask him. Exercise that desire of your heart. And to do so together with thanksgiving. Then, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why the thanksgiving? I think St. Paul learned, I was always wondering, it seems like an odd detail right there. But I think, uh, well I know, that when we experience gratitude in our heart, That is a marker that says, oh, this is a concrete and tangible way that I've experienced the love of God. There's a dandelion of God's love for me in my heart right here. And the natural reaction of our hearts at that moment is gratitude. So if I can, even in my darkest time, if I step away from the thing that's bombarding me, I can look around and can I see anything? Oh, he gives us a little help to jumpstart the gratitude. Brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, gracious, or excellent... 
If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Even in my worst day, if I look around, I can see something that fits those descriptions, either now or in my past. And when I pay attention to those things, the engine of gratitude will get going. And that will give me the energy to turn to God and tell him all about it. And that will give me the energy to ask God for the good things that I need, to pray and to offer petition. Gratitude is the engine, especially when I'm in difficult times, to be able to turn to God relationally and tell him all about it, honestly and consistently, acknowledge and relate my thoughts, feelings, and desires, and to ask for, my desire especially, the good things that I need. And if I do those things, my heart will be receptive, maximally receptive. And the peace of God will guard my heart and mind from all the anguish and distress and fear and anxiety that is bombarding. So those short verses, super practical, concrete advice from St. Paul that can help us tremendously grow in intimacy with God in good times and in bad. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.